Hello and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 65. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction podcast that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Well, editor Luke sent me this this morning before going back to the lab that he works in to incinerate more mice. It's science run amok. It's the perfect blend of horror and meat. It's Drabble News. Time.com. On Monday, the clamorous animal rights group PETA announced that it would award $1 million to the first person to come up with a way to make commercially viable in vitro meat by 2012. The fake meat would have to be indistinguishable from the real deal, according to competition rules, and it would have to be cheap enough to succeed in the marketplace. In theory, this seems like an excellent idea, with the potential to ease the burden on the environment from meat production, reduce greenhouse gas emissions, and improve human health. In practice, however, the chances of anyone actually winning the prize are pretty slim. No one has yet produced in vitro meat. No one has succeeded in even coming close, says Dr. Stig Omholt director of Norway's Center for Integrative Genetics and chair of the In Vitro Meat Consortium, which held its first symposium this month. Still, Omholt says, it seems possible to develop this technology. Scientists first began working with in vitro proteins grown from animal cells in petri dishes and bioreactors about a decade ago. The technology was originally conceived as a means to make food for astronauts to take on long space missions. In 2000, the first edible in vitro muscle protein was created from a goldfish. Here's how the process works. Mad scientists biopsy stem or satellite muscle cells from a livestock animal such as a chicken, cow, or monster pig. The cells are then placed in a nutrient-rich medium where they divide and multiply, and then they're attached to a scaffolding structure and put in a bioreactor to grow. In order to achieve the texture of natural muscle, the cells must be physically stretched, flexed, and exercised regularly. After several weeks, voila, you have a thin layer of muscle tissue that can be harvested and processed into ground beef, chicken, or pork, depending on the origin of the cells. But don't expect to see a big, juicy, in vitro steak anytime soon. The technology has not yet been able to synthesize blood vessels or grow large three-dimensional pieces of meat. And the cost? Well, just one 250-gram piece of Franken-Frankfurter is going to run you about $1 million. What really got Luke excited was the possibility of buff robots covered in synthetically made muscle working out in some Gold's Gym-looking space in a lab. Of course, things would go terribly, terribly wrong. My name is Sarah Connor. The year is 2012. PETA has developed genetically engineered bratwurst borgs that will wage war on all of humanity in the future. My unborn son, John Connor, will be leader of the human resistance against these deadly, sausage-laden war machines. You must help us. They've sent one of them back in time to aerosolize my brain matter so that my son will not be born. Oh god, it's too late. Yeah, I am honored, Schwarzenberger. Are you Sarah Connor at 1 West Maple Street, apartment D2? No, you can't. Hasta roast beef, baby.
This week's Drabble comes to us from Roy McDaniel, an aspiring novelist and game designer from Sydney, Nebraska. It's called Grandpa's Stories. Drabbles are stories exactly 100 words. Send yours to Drabblecast at yahoo.com. Grandpa told me good stories. He said, if you catch lightning and hold it tight, it'll pull you back up into the clouds. It would be like flying. When the boom comes, you've already missed your chance. You've got to be real fast. Yesterday, Mommy was crying. She said Grandpa had gone to heaven. I told her not to be sad. I would bring him back. She just cried more. Up the hill, my arms stretch real high. The warm rain tickles my skin and my fingers start to tingle. I miss the first two, but I'll catch the next one. I guess you shouldn't always listen to your elders. Our feature story this week drives that point home even further. It's called Old Clara's Favorites by Jonathan Gillespie. Jonathan has had work published at Apex Online, Afterburn SF, Spine Tingler, and Murky Depths, and an audio over at Variant Frequencies. We're happy to have this story here on the Drabblecast. So, without further ado, Old Clara's Favorites by Jonathan Gillespie. Old Clara only bought gourds. God only knew why, and folks weren't asking themselves. Not that Clara would have answered. We'd seen Clara around town once or twice, only in fall, and only at the farmer's market. We had a stand open on Saturdays, and although we got up at five to haul the produce to it, I swear Clara beat us there every time. She'd hobble around the baskets and barrels, wrapped in three layers no matter the time of year, searching for what she wanted with gray eyes that sat in a face wrinkled like corn husks after drought. Didn't matter if you had the best-looking tomatoes. Didn't matter if you had silver queen corn worthy of its namesake. Didn't matter, unless you brought gourds. If you had, she'd find them even if the best stand you mustered up was dropping your truck's lift gate in the parking lot and hawking there. We saw all kinds of folks at the market. Local cooks, families dragging yawning kids around, single parents and poor folks we tried to give freebies to, buyers from big restaurants along the highway that sold to tourists looking for country with a K cooking. People haggled, traded, or just caught up on the news or gossip. Not Clara. She'd come up to your booth, fix that stern, underbite, addled frown at you, and pull out a silver dollar of all things. She'd ask what she could get for it, and you'd answer, a bag of gourds, or she'd turn and go to someone else. Then, about sunup, she'd vanish. It wasn't a Houdini or anything. You'd just get busy and you wouldn't see her again. No one ever saw her around town. She had a husband years back, quiet fella named Ed, but as I understand it, he'd run off. Can't say I was surprised. I'd never spoken to Clara, away from the market, 
until late one October night. I'd put down this book I'd been hearing about, something by a Harper Lee fella, and grabbed the phone receiver shaking like a June bug on the end of a kite string. Is this the Phelps house? She'd asked before I'd even spoke. Yes, ma'am. Who's this? Miss Clara. My arthritis is acting up again, Mr. Phelps, so I'm going to be quick about this. I can't make it into town this weekend. I need some gourds. Transactional as always, but I figured if I could help other old folks, I could help her. Do you want me to bring some to you? I offered. Three bags, but bring them over tonight. And just you, Phelps. I don't like anyone here I don't need. Miss Clara, I, I don't... I got a jar full of silver dollars for your trouble. The money didn't make me decide to go over there. What did was her being so desperate she'd offered it. I went upstairs and told Allie where I was going. I could tell she didn't like it, but she knew why I went. She didn't give me a hard time, just a kiss and a plea to be careful. Drunks on the road that time of night, dear, too. Allie was expecting, and I knew what was on her mind. Even the truck was reluctant, not wanting to start until the third or fourth crank. Claire lived at the end of a winding dirt road off Old Highway 6. I hadn't been there, but I'd heard of it. Only house on that road. It took me almost half an hour to get out there, what with the darkness and the bumps rattling over the truck's frame. Fog had rolled into the tree branches that intertwined over the road. Twice, I almost got stuck in muddy ruts. The truck clattered along down a final stretch that ended in waist-high grass. An old log cabin crouched there like a molded-over tree stump. I killed the headlamps, took a deep breath, and climbed out of the truck. An amber glow shined through the filthy, rippled window on the left side of the cabin. I walked around to the passenger side of the truck and got the first bag of gourds. I walked through the grass, up the steps onto the porch, and stopped at the doorway. Light flickered between the hewn pine logs that comprised the door. A distant tweeting sound, like a songbird, but not quite, came from inside. I raised my right fist, hesitated, then wrapped it against the door. The sound ceased. I waited another moment, glanced around behind me. Frogs and crickets called out from the woods. I knocked again. Nothing. Then something scratched the other side of the door, about ankle level. Maybe Clara had a cat. Go on, get back there, she said, her words muffled by the door. Get now, you'll get it soon. The animal scampered away. I swear she unlocked about six latches before opening the door just wide enough to poke her head through. It was dark as pitch inside. Phelps, she said. Her eyes glittered like pools of water, her pupils submerged tadpoles. You bring what I needed? Yes, ma'am, I replied. The bag crinkled as I held it out. Good. She snatched it from me. Now get the other two. She slammed the door so hard the wind almost knocked my hat off. I went back to the truck and took the other bags. It suited me just fine that she wanted to make this quick. Truth be told, I didn't care for the woods at night. Not unless there was a good fire, a guitar, and several friends. 
I carried the two bags back to her door. It swung open before I even got there. Clara stood there waiting. Can you bring him inside? She asked. It hurt taking that last bag down to the cellar. Back gave out on me. She backed against the door and waved a hand in front of me. I had my reservation, sure, but mainly because it was so dark inside. The light I'd seen inside earlier was out. I don't know how she found her way around like that. Sure, Miss Clara, but can we turn on a lamp or something? She grunted, then opened a nearby door and hobbled into the next room, floorboards creaking under her feet. She closed the door behind her. I heard her mumble to herself, or maybe to that cat. A razor of illumination appeared at the bottom of the door. It flickered as she fumbled with something. More scratches. When she came back, she held an old miner's lamp nearly opaque from disuse. The lights inside seemed to intensify as it got close. She tapped the glass a few times, saw my expression, then turned the oil feeder knob. Too much oil, she said. The lamp's light played across her face, casting crags of shadow over her wrinkled skin. She turned and walked down the hallway. I followed, passing only one other door to the left. Cobwebs and dust seemed to inhabit every spare inch of the home. There were framed pictures on the wall, but the dust hid the images. We reached a set of stairs leading down into utter darkness. Clara stood, a single foot on the top stair, and looked at me for a moment. Watch your feet, she said. Steps are narrow. The steps groaned as she descended. I sighed and followed her downwards. Let me tell you about that cellar. First, I think we went down more than a story. Second, you could smell the age in it. Third, I had seen brighter places during an overnight whiteout in winter, lights off with nothing but the moan of the blizzard keeping me company. This place was darker, almost as cold, but dead silent. Except for one sound. Scratches. I'd hear one every few seconds, always from a random direction. Clara stood ahead, just in front of a cabinet. As I walked forward, I heard scratches and scuffles in front of me, then the sounds faded off to the right and left. I started to dismiss the idea of a cat. Whatever was down here, I figured, was Hell's own take on a roach problem. She indicated an empty shelf, then stood to the side as I put the bags down. No, she said. Spread them along the shelf. I glanced at her. Makes them easier to pick up, she said. So I took the gourds out and spread them along the wood. By the time I was done, I heard more scratches. This time, they came back towards us, working their way up along the wall. I wasn't a rude man, but I had to ask. Maybe she was hard of hearing and didn't know she had an infestation. Miss Clara, I think I hear bugs. Don't you worry about that, she replied. But ma'am, I said don't you worry. Look, Miss Clara, this ain't sanitary. You don't know about these old woods, about what's out here. 
so be quiet. You're going to stir him up. Now I was stirred up. What exactly you got in this house? Look here, Phelps, she snarled, brow creased, a gnarled finger pointed at me. I'll pay you for them gourds. Now I ain't concerned about what it is I got in here, and you ain't going to be either, or you don't get those silver dollars. I folded my arms. Maybe she'd talk when I told her I was going easier on her promise. I'll take one silver dollar, I said. Nothing else. Fine, she said, waving her hand dismissively. Now follow me back up, Phelps, so you can get out of here. She walked toward the stairs. I wasn't interested in being in the cellar longer than I needed to, and old woman or not, I'd had about enough. The scratches descended on the shelves behind us. I tried not to think about them. Clara stepped on the first step, then on the second. It strained, then suddenly cracked under her weight. I jerked forward, arms out, and caught her, but the lamp went flying from her fingers and crashed on the floor. The lantern disintegrated, the flames spreading everywhere, glowing fierce. I thought we had a house fire on our hands, until the flame moved across the floor. Clara stood on her own and shoved me away. You get out of here, Phelps. First time she'd ever sounded scared. The moving light went back over to the shelves, and when it got there, other lights burst into life on the surrounding wall. Each light had glowing limbs attached to it. They moved over the gourds. I said get, Clara whispered. The gourds keep them happy. They keep me from winding up like Ed, but they ain't used to you. Wet crunches and snaps echoed in the cellar as the lights drove themselves into the gourds. Holes appeared in the gourds, and light poked through them. I watched just long enough to see those holes take the shapes of faces. They moved off the shelf and across the floor, towards me. I ran up the stairs, then across the house, then outside into my truck, throwing up gravel as I drove away. I don't see Clara anymore. Folks around town say they do, but I don't. I've never told anyone about that night in her house. If you're ever out driving with me, you might laugh to see the detours I'll take to avoid that old dirt road. I even stopped growing gourds. God willing, Clara's got all she'll ever need. Well, that was our story. I hope it tickled your gourd. I love that sound effect. So a few weeks ago we ran Trifecta 3, a special we do every 10 episodes or so of three super short stories under 1,000 words. Most people seem to think that this was the best trifecta so far, featuring Kisses by Tobias S. Bakel, Warmth of the Sun by Sean Ruane, and My Mustache, a love story by Ralph Gamelli. People also really enjoyed the readings by Rick Stringer of Variant Frequencies and Anthony Elmore of the Diabetic and Candyland podcast. Jody Monster said, If I wanted to give someone an overview of some of the kinds of stories they'd likely hear on the Drabblecast, I would suggest this episode. My Mustache was probably my favorite story, if for no other reason than it made me laugh more than is probably safe while driving. Barrendor said, My Mustache was awesomely funny. It even made me register here. 
Well, technically I've registered at the behest of my goatee, but the story made my goatee make me register. Mr. Tweedy said, best trifecta ever. The stories were all good for their own strange reasons, and the choice of narrators was excellent. I've heard Rick Stringer read a couple of things and always liked his voice. Kisses, I think, defines the perfect twist. The bomb doesn't drop until the very last sentence, and that sentence suddenly gives new meaning to every sentence that came before it. I haven't the foggiest idea what Warmth of the Sun was about, but it was fun nonetheless. It seemed like just a stream of consciousness rant, but it was so humorous and pleasantly weird that it didn't really seem like it needed to make sense or have a point. It's like when you get to that part of Super Mario Galaxy where the humongous bee asks you to crawl over her fuzzy body and scratch her five itches in order to advance. Don't question it, it just is. Glad the episode came off well, and thanks again to Rick and Anthony for the great reads. That's all for this week. The Drabblecast uses a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means you can't change it or sell it, but you can share it with your friends. In fact, you should if you get a chance. We rely on you folks for marketing as well as donations, so you should blog about us or tell a friend if you think they'd enjoy the show. Visit our site at www.drabblecast.org to throw a donation our way or to get to our discussion forums. We'd love to hear from you. Tune in next week for Something Unexpected. Until then, our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you that you'll rub the bee all right. You'll rub her, and you'll like it. The evening saunters to closing. The waitress turns chairs upside down. Piano player picks up his tip jar and drink, and the bartender shouts last round. I-